From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. They're thieves. They're thieves. They're filthy metal thieves. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Taming of Schmeagol, where we properly are introduced to Gollum, a character who will change the fate of Middle-earth and cinema forever. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. While this will sound hyperbolic, no joke, the scene we are talking about today is one that literally changed movies forever. I've repeatedly called these films a nexus point of cinema, and probably exhibit A in my defense is the creation of Gollum, a motion-captured CG character actively interacting with live-action tangible elements. The Two Towers was the first film to utilize real-time motion capture. Previous CGI characters such as Jar Jar Binks were not filmed in the same way. 2000's Sinbad Beyond the Veil of Mist and Final Fantasy The Spirits Within are the only other major movies to use motion capture elements prior to The Lord of the Rings. And well, those never looked great anyways. I presume Lucas was quietly improving the computer graphics with each iterative DVD release of the prequels, so what's streaming on Disney Plus right now is probably not the 1999 version of The Phantom Menace. Which gets us to Gollum, who, from the outset, was going to be the biggest challenge to successfully adapting The Lord of the Rings. Not only would they have to integrate an entirely animated character into their main cast, but the most important scenes would float or sink on the believability of the CGI. Lucky for the production team, they had some time to work on it. Gollum would only be glimpsed briefly in Fellowship, not ever interacting with tangible assets or actors, and other cinematic tricks could be employed to achieve storytelling goals, like traditional props when we see his hands and fingers during his torture in Barad-dûr. Work on Gollum began in 1999, two years after production started, and three years prior to the release of The Two Towers. Gollum would be brought to life by Weta Digital in conjunction with the performance of Andy Serkis. 18 animators would be assigned to various aspects of the recreation, facial features, muscle physicals, skeletal build, skin layering, etc. And at the time, facial motion capture wasn't available, so that had to be done solely via animation. Facial motion capture would come along just a little bit later. Any of our listeners who also listen to podcasts on Frontiers will remember they could only do body motion capture for Metal Gear Solid 2 in 2001, but by Metal Gear Solid 3 in 2004, facial motion capture had arrived. One of the reasons Gollum was groundbreaking and still holds up well today is how they built the character model from the ground up. They started with the skeleton, layered on muscles and tendons, and then finally applied the skin. CG characters previously were modeled without that middle muscle layer due to technological limitations. And because of that muscle layer, the production was able to avoid any quote-unquote uncanny valley moments, and the character was much more closely in sync with Circus's physical performance. 
This was a massive coding undertaking as they needed a ton of modules just for volume preservation of muscles, joint behaviors, and bone movement underneath. The other big breakthrough is subsurface scattering, which is understanding how light is absorbed and reflected by skin and flesh. We as humans absorb some light, reflect other light, and different patches of skin in different locations vary in their absorption and reflection. This is why, say, we can see our veins in certain points of our body, but not in others. With this in place, the team was really able to go to town with details and features to make Gollum seem more like us. Wrinkles, pores, blemishes were added to the skin, with a particular emphasis around the eyes and corners of the mouth. If they could nail these, the visual focal points of the character, the rest should follow easily enough. And in addition to his skin surface, they added scars, cuts, and bruises to give the character a lived-in history. He even has an eye twitch. Speaking of the eyes, about a quarter of the total polygons used to create Gollum are in the eyes alone, 5,000 to be exact. And while that sounds like a lot, we have exponentially surpassed that number in modern-day films. For example, Alita Battle Angel, which is another Weta digital creation, has over 9 million polygons in her eyes alone. I mentioned earlier that facial motion capture was not there yet, so Gollum's face would have to be animated separately. In total, his face would consist of 875 shapes, subject to 64 different vectors of control, so they can get all the face performance and emoting that was required. And then, of course, there's the giant ape in the room, Andy Serkis. (laughs) Get it? Because he also motion-captured King Kong in Peter Jackson's remake, and played the role of Caesar in the recent Planet of the Apes trilogy. Which, rule by the way, highly recommend those. Because of his performance as Gollum, Circus would become the number one motion capture performer in Hollywood, though I am enjoying seeing him actually do stuff as a human these days, such as Alfred Pennyworth in the new Batman movie. The scenes involving Gollum in the Two Towers would have to be shot multiple times in multiple ways. First, there would be a performance with the actors on set, in a physical space, to set geography and give Elijah, Sean, and Faramir actor David Wenham something to work with. Circus would be in an all-white getup for these scenes. These scenes would also be shot without Circus on set, but Elijah and company acting as if he were there. Then, in a separate studio altogether, Circus would do the full range of motion and performance. Black mats, black screens, and a black getup for circus shot by 25 separate cameras. The crew weren't even allowed to have water bottles in this room in case it affected the lighting. This is where you can see circus spinning around and doing the crazy golem shit. He had goggles on that allowed him to see what the scene looked like with him in it so he could adjust his performance accordingly. Circus really did get into his character, breaking a number of motion capture rigs as he bounced around the room. Production went through 12 rigs alone during Return of the King. And then on top of all this filming, Circus and the animators would have to just put in extra time working on smaller gestures and facial movements. The voice is pretty much all Circus, though there is a little bit of punch-up to it. Really, it's just a testament to his performance in The Two Towers that he essentially had to do every scene twice, once almost entirely without context, and just hoped that the final product would synthesize well enough, which I think it did. Ultimately, the production's goal was to capture the duality of Gollum, and I just don't mean Gollum and Spiegel talking to themselves. They wanted to make sure there was something alien, feral, unwelcoming in his design, but also something human, with emotions and thought processes like us. He should be gross yet cute. 
smart and conniving like an adult, but occasionally dumb like a child. A cuddly murderer. The work would become easier for Return of the King, however. The technology progressed enough, in large part due to Weta's work on The Two Towers, that they were able to do the full motion capture performance on set, and by the time the Hobbit films, and by the time of the Hobbit films, facial motion capture had arrived. And for how bad the Hobbit films look generally, I think the Gollum in Unexpected Journey is legitimately gorgeous. Well, gorgeous for a slimy little fucked up guy. (laughs) New Line Cinema would push for an Oscar nomination for Circus, though none would come. The Academy officially said that motion capture performances would be eligible, but as of yet, we haven't seen a nomination to my knowledge. Though, to be fair, outside of Gollum, the only role I can see being nominated would be Circus as Caesar in the Apes movies. Which is, again, another mark in my book for the Academy don't know shit, and uh, we should get rid of them all. Uh, Academy anarchy, I guess. Um, no, so I'm, I'm really fascinated hearing all of this because I, I've sort of like pointedly avoided learning anything about Gollum or, or the sort of CG, uh, like, uh, sort of background to, to these films, mostly because I think like the discourse around computer graphics and cinema is like fucking noxious right now. And I think like there's a tendency to be like all CG is bad and lazy and like, there is kind of a cesspit to this discourse that I'm just like, I, I never want to get involved in. But but hearing this, I'm I'm kind of flabbergasted at, at sort of the immensity of this project. And, and there's kind of like a couple um, like kind of key issues or points for me in this. Like one is that like, you know, I, I think we should know and, and we do tend to note this on this podcast, but these films succeed because like they have a really clear creative thesis so like they're making all these like stylistic and technical choices in support of a wider argument that the films are trying to make. So, you know, in this case, they're emphasizing storytelling and myth and legend. And then all of the creative and technical choices made therein rely on that thesis to determine their form. It's not like they're just putting things together because, oh, that would look cool or, oh, that would look badass. They're thinking seriously about the decisions that they're making and how it relates to the thrust of their story. And like, I mean, come on, Gollum is like the perfect example of this. Um, and also, I think in sort of a wider kind of more discourse, capital D discourse oriented uh, way, he's he's a he Gollum is a perfect example <laughs> of how like these films in particular got CG right in a way that most films before or since haven't really. Um, so I feel like for me, the the kind of key upfront issue here or point here is that they weren't using cg to cut corners like or to box out unionized labor as, as we talk about a, a lot on here um, although i will say and i do think i've mentioned this before but i want to mention it again um when they did come around to do the uh, hobbit films they basically gutted new zealand's uh, employment worker protection laws uh absolutely destroyed uh, gutted, ruined uh, New Zealand's sort of uh, industrialized labor, unionized landscape. Uh, so that that's worth noting. Uh, just when they were doing Lord of the Rings, they weren't quite as uh, anti-union bad for, for trade unionists as they would later be. Um, and then, you know, for the, the sort of purpose of the CG, they're also not using CG to, to you know, like surmount obstacles that could or should be surmounted in sort of clever ways they're like using cg which is to say they're not using cg because uh you know they don't have a problem they do have a problem which is as you say Gollum. what the fuck do you do with Gollum? but 
there's not really a sort of feeling that like, oh, well, Gollum would have looked better if they'd just done like a painted a, you know, a balloon on a stick uh, and said Gollum. Uh, no, like the practical wouldn't have been very good. They're, they're kind of broadening out um, and experimenting with the, the sort of full capabilities, technical capabilities they have to do something better, not to just do something cheaply and, uh, well, not quickly, but with uh, cheap, uh, largely dispo- disposable or dispensable labor. Um, so I think like, you know, there, there's kind of this, well, as you say, you know, there, there's this element of Gollum really adds to the whole sort of veneer and feel and aesthetic sort of decision of, of, or, or direction of these films. Like Gollum contributes to the storybook feeling of these films because he is both, you know, sort of recognizable kind of, but, but also kind of cartoonish enough and not cartoonish in a bad way, but cartoonish enough that we can tell that this is not of our world. You know, later when we see the Oliphants, uh, the Moonlack, uh, you know, they, they're of our world. Um, they're also CG, but, but they're of our world and, and they're not necessarily fantastical except in size. And that's something that we can sort of parse and understand a lot more easily. Gollum is definitely not of this world. Uh, and, and so having that CG element, having that sort of additional, uh, like compounding layer of like, we're, we're going to go beyond what the practical can do, I think works really well here. Um, and I think that's also kind of linked into this thing where they, they issue hyperrealism. Um, Gollum is stylized. Like Gollum has those massive fucked up looking eyes and, he doesn't really have to like, like physiologically, I don't know, physically, I guess, in terms of light and like the, the movement of light, the passage of light through like rods and cones in the eyes, like Gollum's eyes are probably a, a problem for him, uh, particularly if he's cutting about, uh, in the daytime, uh, which we see him do. Um, but they're like, they're not thinking about that. They don't care. Uh, and, and they're right to not care. Um, because it has this, this sort of better, clearer stylistic element to it. Um, and it means that in the places where the CG does sort of fall a little flat, which, which are few, few and far between, like genuinely few and far between our brains don't process it as much unless we're looking for it because we're like, there's this beautifully stylized thing, (laughs) goblin (laughs) lurking in front of us. And we're, we're, we're interested in what this goblin is doing. We're not processing this as something that's definitely of our world and therefore sort of looking for the flaws because we know it's CG. Um, And I think that in particular is is really, really smart filmmaking because it's this kind of awareness that there are going to be limitations to uh, the the tech that they're using um, and thinking about, thinking holistically as well about how they're going to cover it. And I think in a lot of sort of uh, I've modern feels weird, but like in a lot of sort of contemporary, uh, like instances of, of computer graphics, and I'm so sorry to do this, but like the Marvel films in particular, um, you get the sense that like they, they've kind of been like, okay, we're going to use CG and it's because it's cheap and it cuts out the union labor, but also the CG isn't going to look great because we're working our CG artists to death and not paying them. Um, and if it looks like crap, then it looks like crap because good enough is good enough. And you don't ever get the sense, or at least I don't ever get the sense in The Lord of the Rings that at any point with Gollum, they were like, good enough is good enough. They definitely are pushing what they're able to do. And I think they're also kind of having this this advantage in this, this process of creating Gollum because they've got someone like Andy Serkis, who is so like committed and thoughtful um, and, and sort of... Um, like well creative i guess for for want of a better word about how to bring Gollum to life and how uh, and willing to be so involved in that process and and to sort of take part in every single step of the way you've got that sort of more like collaborative um uh like multimodal i guess approach to 
Gollum, where it's not like every single element of this is kind of like Fordist style uh, segmented out along the factory line and, and everybody's alienated from one another. You get the sense that Gollum is definitely this collaborative effort and for being a collaborative effort and for being a collaborative effort that's guided by this like stylistic thesis, you get one of the best examples of CG ever in films and you know we're what 20 well we are literally 20 years on from these films i know that because that's why we're doing the podcast but you know we're 20 years on it and it's unsurpassed um, and it's because all of these sort of elements very uh very purposely came into into line uh in this process yeah i don't think the lord of the rings was necessarily alone at this time because i do think some of the work george Lu- or a lot of the work george lucas was doing on the prequels did push um, you know, kind of computer graphics yeah. forward and also a lot of the work that was being done on the matrix. But I think you, you see people like now in 2022 going back and saying, well, these shots from the prequels didn't age well, or this scene for matrix reloaded doesn't look that great, but you don't really get that much in terms of the Lord of the Rings. And there are shots that I don't think look great. And one will flag in this episode specifically, <laughs> but it's never to that level that like, oh, this is clearly fake or clearly a product of its time it's still so of a piece with the rest of the production that it never really takes you out of it and even the one like shot i'm in a flag is not the greatest cgi still is pretty cool and like has some stuff going on in it where i'm not immediately just thinking about the quality of the cgi but rather what's happening on screen yeah you know what not to come to the defense of the prequels because i really do hate a lot of this prequels revisionism that's going on right now but um but like you are right to point out that uh, the CG work that's going on in the prequels is 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 groundbreaking and and also really good. And yes, some of it doesn't stand up, but a lot of it is really great. You know, the the opening of um, uh, oh my god, there's so many fucking returns and revenges. Re- Re- Revenge of the Sith, um, number three, um, is beautiful. You know, it's that space battle and it looks great. It looks like an old sort of uh, height of the British Empire admiralty sea battle. Um, it's got the great sort of planetary design in the background. All of the ships look good. They're like, they're very well stylized. They're very well handled. And that's all CG. That's like 100%, well, 99% bar Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen CG. And that looks beautiful. And you never really see people pick up on that. And And the reason why, I think people don't really tend to pick up on that is because there's so much of it. There's so much CG. Um, and I also think there's a sort of overall lack of like, um, like creative coherence to what's going on in, uh, in, in the prequels. And, you know, there's, there's an entire podcast to be made about, you know, why the prequels go wrong, but, you know, some of it is like George Lucas has really sort of, uh, been told he kind of has no limitations and also doesn't really have good editors around him, uh, as he did with the original trilogy to tell him to stop fucking doing dumb things. Um, and you see that in the prequels, um, and it's this sort of one man on a crusade to fight technology, to fight God, to do whatever it is he's trying to do <laughs> in the prequels. And, uh, the Lord of the Rings is really scaled back and, and, you know, you, you can tell that there are a lot of people working behind the scenes on each element, but they also know when to take the L and just go the practical route. Um, and that, I think, is the sort of benefit to this, um, because it's CG as like a tool for a better artistic product instead of CG as kind of like a bandaid over a bullet hole.
We talk a lot on this podcast about how effectively these films use New Zealand to set the scene, but as we join Frodo and Sam in a bleak grey hellhole, it was really exciting to me to finally see Glasgow portrayed so accurately on screen. <laughs> the boys are lost, which is fair enough. The first time I was left on my own to my own devices in Glasgow, I also ended up getting trailed by a sweaty, shrieking man in a loincloth. I don't think Gandalf meant for us to come this way. Sam, buddy, Sam, my good friend Sam. I suspect Gandalf also didn't mean to fucking die. I don't think your GPS failure was necessarily a high priority of his. But here we go. Time for another brilliant Jaws homage shot, as Frodo and the Eye of Sauron are once again thrown into an unintentional FaceTime. Frodo is white, Sam shows his concern, and Frodo tells him the ring is getting heavier. Which raises the question, what if gravity was just stronger the closer you get to Mordor? Huh? Huh? Anyone? I'm a proud YouTuber, and the fact that nobody in the film raises that possibility is something I am henceforth theming a plot hole. Anyways, as the good little cringe Brit that he is, Sam sees that Frodo's in crisis and very gently goes to put the kettle on. It's time for some Lembus bread tea cakes, just in time for Sam to say what might actually be the most aggressively British line ever recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually hold with foreign food. Which I think makes this scene the Middle Earth equivalent of Sam getting halfway through a lad's trip to Shagaloof and suddenly discovering that the Spaniards have also invented plain wheat bread. Sam's parochial, undampenable optimism is, however, immediately countered by the thundering of storm clouds in the distance. It's okay, it's sympathetic weather. Sam and Frodo then go to sleep in the gap between two jagged cliffs, and a new contender enters the ring. Haha, <laughs> get it? Ring? Ring? I'm the trash man! I come out, I throw trash all over, the, all over the ring, and then I start eating garbage! Okay, so this is a joke that will appeal to exactly five people in the world, but my family's dog is a Japanese chin, which are these awful little goblin dogs that Steven Spielberg literally based the gremlins off of, and when they get to really excited when they're playing, they will literally make the, the noise Gollum makes here. And it makes me weep with laughter whenever I think about it. Gollum, hissing like a cat after tuna, dives for the ring. Here's another brilliant moment of CG magic, because Sam straight up grabs Gollum's ankle, and it looks seamless. Gollum then bitch slaps Sam, and please know that as we record this, like, literally three days after the Oscars, I am showing unparalleled self-restraint and not making the easy joke. There's more struggling over the ring, Gollum continuing to behave like a feral cat. Check out the amazing work on his cheeks as he wheezes here. And, of course, Gollum executing what the Wikipedia page for WWE moves tells me is a, quote, shooting star elbow drop. It's just masterful. Frodo then whips Sting out, Gollum relents, and then the show really kicks into gear. There are a lot of things Andy Serkis deserved the Oscar for in his portrayal of Gollum, but hand to God, I think the noises he makes through this scene alone should have snagged him that dub. It's just a smorgasbord of the most unhinged, wailing, shrieking, heaving, huffing, and puffing you've ever heard. And though it comes off as cartoonish, it never comes off as shit to your cartoonish. It works perfectly. Also worth noting here that Sean Astin absolutely does go after Gollum like he's chasing away a feral cat. Every single time he gets near him, it's so easy to imagine some raggedy-ass tomcat in his place. Just great acting. 
Frodo, Sam, and Gollum each lay out their theses about pity and mercy and duty. Frodo, operating on the belief that the more pitiable the creature, the less that they ultimately pose to him. Sam, rightly, realizing that though, that though Gollum is pitiable, it also means he has nothing to lose and is therefore more dangerous. And Gollum, trading on pity because he knows Frodo's a mark. There's some moral argument to be made here, but, you know, that's for another time. In the end, though, Frodo's thesis rules the day. You know the way to Mordor. You've been there before. You will lead us to the Black Gate. The hyper-litigious part of me wants to point out how insane it is that Frodo specifies the Black Gate and not into Mordor, but oh well, it ends up being a problem anyways. The music swells, and we're off! It's 106 miles to Chicago, we got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! Today's story analysis has a clear main event, our Gollum breakdown. But we want to hit some smaller topics first, starting with the Amun Muil. This was filmed in Tongariro National Park, as are many of the on-location sets for Mordor. Iwikau Village and the volcanic rock cliffs behind Erangi Lodge were used for the Amun Muil. Geographically, these are the hills that run on both sides of the lake of Nanhithowel, though for the film's purposes, we mo- mostly focus on the eastern side of things. As Gimli described in Fellowship of the Ring, it is an impassable labyrinth of razor-sharp rocks that I feel the set design and on-location filming really nails in these opening scenes. The Amun Muil stretches 75 miles east to west and 100 north to south, so that's a very large chunk of land to go on foot, especially with no sense of direction. And if anyone, like me, was obsessed with Bear Grylls and Man vs. Wild, you'll know that humans will typically end up going along curved paths or walk in outright circles when trying to navigate uneven land. Which also makes me kind of think of Treebeard's line later in this movie, where he talks about how going south always feels like going downhill. Yeah, and I mean, that's a great call um, as well, because uh, Tolkien has this moral geography uh, as part of uh, Lord of the Rings specifically, but also part as the, of the broader legendarium. Um, and so if you imagine that there's a there's a coordinate plane, uh, a four quadrant coordinate plane laid out over the map of Middle Earth, um, in the north, the far north, uh, the axis that runs north to south, the far north is sort of the more simple cultures. And the South is the more sophisticated cultures. Uh, The far West is the more morally good cultures. And the far East is the more morally bad cultures. Um, And so... Um, in a in a in a sense, uh, Tolkien or Treebeard rather is sort of acknowledging this this moral geography that's going on here, which is you know going going downhill, going south. Effectively, um, is your sort of passage towards things that are in some ways better. And if you you know reconjure that image of the coordinate plane over the map of Middle Earth in your head, uh, the Emin Wheel is essentially the gateway to the evil but sophisticated quadrant. Uh, the I think that would be like on the the meme uh, ideology one, like the libertarian right. Uh, so you can just imagine the fucking hellhole we're about to enter now. Uh, I don't know if Treebeard worries about age of consent laws. <laughs> At his age, it probably really doesn't matter. Um, switching from geography to history, in the Third Age of uh, three thousand two, the father of Eomer and Eowyn, 
Eomond, was killed in the Amonmuel pursuing orcs. Yeah, and so this is like a lovely bit of efficient uh, geography-based characterization here on behalf of Tolkien, um, because as we will get into uh, ad nauseum in the coming weeks and months, uh, the Rohirrim are cavalrymen as standard. Uh, They they use horses as their primary method of of, uh, transport, of uh, fighting, of control uh, over spaces, locations, geography. Uh, So given that... uh, and given that we now have seen what the Emin wheel looks like, um, I, I just have to ask the question, what does it tell us about Eomer and Eowyn's father that he led horsemen on a hunt through that terrain? Also, I'm a big fan of how mist and rain are worked into the scene. It adds to the labyrinthine, unnavigable aspect of the Emin wheel, but is also a good use of sympathetic nature, which Emily highlighted in her recap. Those rain clouds dampening Sam's spirits really comes to life. Moving on to some other periphery, we get introduced to a fair amount of elven stuff in this set of scenes. First, we'll talk about Lembas. The Sam Frodo storyline in The Two Towers highlights various elven wares and texts, stuff received from Galadriel in Lothlorien, but that were not highlighted in the theatrical editions, but were in the extended of The Fellowship of the Ring. Perhaps most prominent of these is Lembas, which is specifically becomes a runner in the Hobbit storylines. Lembas translates to waybread, which derives from journey bread, Lembas, and is called Koimas in Quenya, which stands in for life bread. And the phrase Lembas bread is kind of like the phrase chai tea in its redundancy, but was specifically mentioned in the two towers as such, since they didn't include the scene from Fellowship of the Ring explaining what Lembas actually is. The inspiration for Lembas bread is probably from hard tack, which served as a sort of military ration of its day, not much more than flour and water and baked so as to stay fresh for months at a time. And I'm sure there's all sorts of Catholic imagery and Lama Day stuff that I know shit about, so I'm going to shut up and let Emily do that part. <laughs> yeah, so so I also uh, am not well-versed in, in this because this is, uh, well, importantly, Lama's Day is a, like, it is a Catholic uh, celebration, but it's mostly like a Western and kind of Northwestern um, European Catholic celebration. Um, it has its sort of origins, like it, its derivations and um, Celtic celebrations celebrating uh, the harvest, uh, the, the the sort of first pull of the harvest. Um, and so uh, Lamas is, a, is the time when you celebrate the harvest of the wheat, uh, harvesting of wheat um, and is meant to be, there's literally uh, the, the, the sort of etymology of Lamas is loaf mass. Uh, so literally loaf of bread and, and mass. Um, and, uh, you know, you get sort of this element of uh, in particularly the northwest of Europe as Catholicism, as it was wont to do, uh, sort of adapted itself to the the sort of indigenous cultures of, of the regions it was attempting to enter into. Um, you get a, a sort of more, uh, well, I'm going to have to be careful here, uh, naturalistic uh, and uh, pagan inspired uh like uh rolodex of 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 celebrations and of traditions and this is really clearly one of them um because uh there's this sort of heavy emphasis on on, on the natural world and uh and celebration of harvest and a lot of uh pagan particularly northwestern european pagan celebrations um and uh as we kind of discussed in uh the legolas episode uh tolkien himself has a uh, well generally he has a, a 
very keen interest in in the traditions of Northwestern Europe, Norse traditions in particular. Um, but he also has a, a keen interest in uh, this sort of more naturalist, uh, non-materialist side of Catholicism. Um, and uh, when and where he can, he tends to take the, the sort of capital R romantic route through Catholic traditions and through Catholic history. And this sort of uh, conjunction of uh, Lamas Day and uh, Lembus bread uh, is is one of these really good instances of that. In the story, the bread is hearty and filling, as they often say one small bite can keep a man without hunger for a long time. It is wrapped in melorn leaves to help maintain its freshness. Gimli describes the taste as sweet and pleasant. Like most elven materials and crafts, it is anathema to corrupted and dark forces, for example, Gollum can't abide Lembas, and it is used as a plot point in Return of the King as the trio heads up the stairs of Kirith Ungol. So one of the interesting sort of elements of Lembas bread as well, and, you know, circling back again, oh my god, I'm so sorry for saying circling back, I'm like tech jargoned out, and going back to this sort of chat about like naturalism and Catholicism and its relation to Lembas, um, Tolkien was careful uh, in his sort of uh, meta discourses about The Lord of the Rings to make clear that The Lord of the Rings as a story itself is not a religious allegory. He is very much not C.S. Lewis. He is not trying to do Lion Jesus. He's, you know, there are uh, obvious references and obvious sort of elements of symbolism, but it's absolutely not an allegory for, for any part of uh, uh, Catholic teaching or general Christian religious sort of history and heritage. Um, However, it, he also acknowledged very openly that there, that that at its heart, uh, Lord of the Rings is a Catholic story, uh, and and this is something that he said time and time again. Um, and one of the instances that he points out as as uh, you know, sort of proof perfect that uh, the Lord of the Rings is a Catholic story is is Lembus bread, um, or Lembus. Um, and and so given that, it's kind of interesting to me that um, Lembus is is this sort of close analog for the Eucharist. Uh, and uh, for for those who don't know, uh, part of uh, the the sort of rites and, and traditions of the Catholic Church and, and involves uh, communion. Um, and you know, I'm sure everybody will have heard the jokes about like, "This is my body, this is my blood." Bread being the the body of Christ, uh, and, and and a sort of important part of uh, how. Um, uh, parishioners, uh, people, Catholics, the the sort of lay people, and well, also and the clergy, uh, think about and and relate their relationship to God and and to capital C Church. Uh, so Lembus bread is, uh, you know, even Tolkien kind of got you know, well nailed to the cross, I guess here on on this is saying, yeah, this is one of these moments where like the Catholicism really <laughs> comes out at uh, eleven here. Um, and, and then there's also sort of this secondary uh, element of in some of the auxiliary texts, I think, including in the Silmarillion. Uh, Lembus is something that was passed down from the Valar, Valar Yavanna, who in the Valar are like the demigods, uh, to the elves. Um, and elvish women in particular would prepare it um, in uh, preparation for like long journeys or for, you know, uh, elves going off to battle. So there's also sort of this like uh, intensely sort of domestic uh, hearth oriented gendered element to uh, Gladriel having passed this on to Frodo for his quest. Very interesting. I don't know if I should say this publicly, but everything I know about the Eucharist, I learned from Dave Matthews Band's The Christmas Song, <laughs> where it's basically one line where he says, take this bread, think of it as me, drink this wine, and soon you will see. Um, 
That's it. That's all I know <laughs> That's about the most, it. like, mid-2000s take on, like, learning about religion imaginable. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am a good and proper heathen king in that regard. <laughs> and though not explicitly called out, we also see elven rope used in these scenes, and they do get a specific call out in the extended edition. It's what they use to tie up Gollum and drag him around for a bit. Again, like Lembus, the rope is specifically and increasingly unpleasant to the touch to Gollum's skin. He says it both burns and freezes him. In the extended edition, which I'm giving you some free non-Patreon content Ooh. here, we will, <laughs> we will also see the bit about how elven rope will stay fastened as required, but when the user is done, they can just tug on the rope and the knot will come loose. Um, so, so this is funny. Um, I was kind of going back to see, um, I wanted to see how people reacted to, uh, the, uh, announcement or the arrival of Lembus on the Elven Rope, uh, in the Two Towers immediately after Fellowship, or sorry, immediately after the film came out. So I was looking for people's reactions on the internet from the early 2000s. Um, and one of the really sort of fun bits of internet archaeology that if you've got some time to spare, I definitely recommend doing is going and looking at all of the many hundreds of messages long threads of people arguing about the elven rope and about whether Gollum untied it, whether it's magic, whether magic exists in uh, the Lord of the Rings and and how it looks. And it, they are some bitter fights, but they're also genuinely brilliant because it's loads of people in 2002 who like have obviously, number one, never read the books, which is totally fine. But number two, also exist in an internet landscape where things like, for example, Tolkien Gateway or the Lord of the Rings wiki, fan wiki, don't yet exist. So without reading the books, you're not going to know these things, which means that the arguments are fantastic and just lots of fun to read through and, and see how, how the world used to be. So that takes us to Gollum, arguably the linchpin of this narrative. A quick disclaimer up top, with these main characters, we like to dive into the character's race history in the larger Legendarium. Gollum is no different in that regard, but we are going to postpone our discussion of the Proto-Hobbits for a Rings of Power preview episode where it might be more relevant to you. Gollum, of course, is not the character's given name. Gollum comes from the coughing sound he makes, being a decrepit gangle creature thanks to the ring. <laughs> Smeagol is his actual name, such that it is. There are some varied interpretations on how his name should be pronounced, though the way the movies and we say it is considered acceptable. Uh, yeah. So, okay, this is another one of these things where I think people are just getting into bitch fights because they want to pretend that they know more about Tolkien than everybody else around them. So the two options are like Smeagol versus Smeagol. As far as I'm concerned, they're both totally valid. Um, Tolkien said it one way, which is the Smeagol. Everybody else says it's Smeagol. Um, it's also worth noting that most of this argument hinges on the existence of a diacritic in his name. So Smeagol has a like an a, like a, a an accent mark above uh, the e in his name. Um, and while that's usually a good indicator of pronunciation in uh, in the languages that that are based off of Sindarin or Quenya. Uh, Gollum's name is, well, Smeagol, rather, is based off of uh, Old English uh, and is one of the Westron dialects. And so the diacritics maybe aren't as uh, as uh, revealing as we want them to be. Um, but also, Tolkien sometimes had a habit of just adding diacritics to names because it looked fucking cool. So you can't always take the diacritics to really mean what they should be. Um, and as sort of part of this fight over Smeagol versus Smeagol, you get this 
sort of interesting connection here to the the problem of using uh, Old English Anglo-Saxon as the sort of stand-in for all of the sort of historical dialects of Westron in The Lord of the Rings, which is that you have lots of, like, lots, unfortunately, you have lots of different ways of pronouncing uh, Anglo-Saxon English as well. Uh, and so there's not really one easy or clear route uh, if you go, you know, dive through the history books to figuring out how to pronounce these things. Uh, so the Smeagol Smeagol thing is basically tailor-made to make the nerds fight, uh, which is fun, but nerds fighting is is no longer as funny as it used to be. Um, and then the other thing is um, there is uh, Smea, Smey, which is the the sort of root of Smeagol there, uh, is also has a relationship to, to uh, the, the name Cain. Uh, as in Cain and Abel. Uh, so there's that sort of also secondarily biblical kind of evil uh, undertone to to Smeagol. I got nothing to add to that, but I might start saying Smeagol just because it makes me think of Hegel <laughs> uh, for no other reason than that. We can talk about what Marx and Smeagol <laughs> meant 150 or 170 years ago or whatever. Fucking but <laughs> But Smeagol matters more than just as a fact. It represents Gollum's last connection to his fading humanity. It's, what, it's what's left of him from before the ring, his own link to the past, just as he, the character, is our story's link to the past as well. He's the once and future ring bearer, after huh. all. We will get to this scene in a few weeks, but when Frodo first charms Smeagol with some small talk, he establishes that connection first by acknowledging Gollum by his given name. Frodo acknowledges Gollum's humanity, and in doing so allows Gollum to do it himself, something he probably hasn't done in a hundred years. We've talked in depth about names throughout our coverage, and how most characters have several, almost annoyingly so. But with Gollum, it's a window into the pathos of the character in a fun way. It's a perfect encapsulation of what he loses in coveting the ring. The last of his monologue to open Return of the King is, We even forgot our own name. It was the last thing he had. So naming on people being named in uh, Tolkien's Legendarium is also a really, really important thing here. Um, and uh, you were totally right about uh, names being sort of the, the the key the 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 key to the door of Pathos and and the Lord of the Rings. Um, particularly, well, not just the Lord of the Rings in the Silmarillion. Um, the elves had a tradition of having. Uh, mother names and father names, um, and also sort of giving people secondary names that became very much their first names uh, as they sort of grew and developed into themselves as individuals. Um, and in The Lord of the Rings specifically, we see, as you pointed out, like the, the sort of variety of names that people have, but there's also the significance to the giving of names. Uh, so as we're going to see in uh, a, a couple episodes, uh, when Eomer in the books meets Aragorn, uh, they have this conversation, and, and after they sort of get on side, and, and realize that they're going to be homies. Uh, Eomer names Aragorn uh, Wingfoot, uh, and that is that bestowing that bestowal of a name is sort of the sign of this like awareness of Aragorn's uh, humanity, but also a sort of recognition that they are uh, they have this sort of bond and uh, and and uh, like kinship now, kindredship now, um, and then later in. Uh, the what is it yeah return of the king you also see uh you know eowyn taking on the name durnhelm and being named durnhelm as she rides off to battle and the significance again of hearing her name eowyn said to her um to her not about her uh towards the end of return of the king and the name uh the function of the name and the existence and usage of the name is a way to sort of bestow humanity and companionship and and sort of a connection to the world on the characters in lord of the rings 
and I don't have these notes in front of me, but I think there's also going to be a simpatico there with Treebeard because when Mary and Pippin meet him in the books, he yeah. talks about how his real name is actually almost a history unto itself. The name isn't just mm. uh, descriptive or whatever, but there's way more to it. So uh, keep that in mind as well. And now, of course, I have to do a little A Song of Ice and Fire <laughs> tangent, which I feel like I should just get the Game of Thrones theme song and just kind of play it every time I'm about to do this. Uh, we can find an equivalent for Dante's Inferno for Emily as well. <laughs> but you see something similar happen with Theon Greyjoy, and I hate to be that guy, but more so in the books than the show, which varies significantly after the fourth season. But Theon is George Martin's way of doing a golem in his own story. Gollum was once like our beloved hobbits, just as Theon was introduced to us as part of the beloved Stark family. Theon's downfall is more quote-unquote human. That's to say his ruin comes from coveting his father's affections and Winterfell, and his decrepit turn comes at the hands of a nasty man and his flaying knife, not a magic ring. Surely every reader wanted Theon dead after he took Winterfell and betrayed the king in the north, but something tells me Theon has some part yet to play, for good or ill, in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. Okay, tangent done. The last name we want to talk about is Trahalt. Uh, we should, you know, which is a, the Westron name that Smeagol has, which means burrowing or apt to crawl in a hole, which seems about right. And I believe there is some relation to the Westron name for smog as well, right? Yeah, um, it's also, uh, I, I'm going to regret so much saying the term, using the term I'm about to use. It's very much a hole-based thing. Uh, it's burrowing, delving, uh, you know, crawling into the decrepit and uh, despairing depths. Um, but far more importantly than that, it's also Tolkien going, uh, all the bad shit is called the same thing, which is why I have Saruman and Sauron and Smaug and Smeagol and Chahad and oh my god, I've totally forgotten uh, Smaug's Westron name. This is shameful. But everybody who whomst bad uh, shares the same name. Is it Tragu? That's it. Thank you. Okay. I didn't, I put that in the notes. I didn't know if that was like the root term that we we're matching or if that was actually Smog's name. No, so. that is, yep. So going a little bit into Gollum's history, he was born in the Third Age, 2340, and Smeagol was a Stor, a breed of hobbit that lived in flat and wetland areas uh, compared to other types of hobbits who we see living in the holes, such as the Shire. They settled primarily along the Anduin. Um, worth noting here that the Brandybuck family, which is Mary's family, were said to be quite storish in nature because they had storish ancestors. Mary and Gollum, one in the same. Um, also, when I was bitching about Lord of the Rings uh, on Prime uh, on the trailer teaser trailer reaction episode that we did, um, I mentioned that um, there were other types of hobbits that were kicking about outside of uh, the Shire uh, in in the Second Age, and the stores are one of them. And they are not the ones that are going to be featured on the Lord of the Rings show. However, the ones that are going to be featured on the Lord of the Rings show are the Harfoots. Slightly different. And circling back to that Mary connection, because these stores were living along the Great River, they are more waterfaring than most other Hobbit types. Like we talked about, Sam not being able to swim at the end of Fellowship. Um, and that kind of ties in because, you know, we see Gollum in the Hobbit movies. He has a little boat deep in his little cave in um, the Misty Mountains that he paddles along to his little island. And then we also know Mary is one of the more, you know, water friendly of the Hobbits. He's the one who leads them to Buckleberry Ferry and is supposedly one of the few Hobbits that can actually swim, as is common amongst the Brandy Bucks. 
As depicted in Return of the King, Smeagol went fishing with his cousin Deagle for his birthday by the Gladden Fields, and this is where his cousin would discover the ring in the bottom of the river. Smeagol demanded it as a birthday present. Deagle refused. Things got kinky with some choking. <laughs> Smeagol wound up plus one ring and minus one cousin. <laughs> he was roughly 33 at this point, which is about the same age Frodo was when the ring passed to him. Around seven to eight years later, he'd be banished from his home and would seek refuge in caves in the Misty Mountains. He'd take to calling the ring his precious, though in various texts he'd also use birthday present. He'd live under the Misty Mountains for nearly 500 years, the ring twisting him and his body the whole time. He'd subsist on fish and bats and the like in the cold dark of the mountains. The Third Age, 2941, is when Thorin's company would pass through, and Bilbo Baggins would find the ring after it abandoned Gollum, as per Galadriel's prologue. There will be a whole riddle game, something about pockets, and the pity of Bilbo ruling the fate of all. The only reason I don't want to go too much into this is because it is one of the truly solid scenes from the Hobbit movies, so gotta save some mojo <laughs> for those, I guess. Gollum would go on to curse Hobbitses forever, and would eventually leave the mountains to try and hunt down Bilbo. He traveled as far as Mordor, where he discovered the Long Stair and its giant spider guardian. He'd be caught and tortured in Barad-dûr, where he'd reveal what he knew of the ring's current whereabouts, Shire and Baggins, as we know from Fellowship of the Ring. From here, the book and film history diverge somewhat. The films basically have Mordor setting Gollum loose again, as if injecting a little chaos into the world. <laughs> It's like the Joker giving a freshly two-faced Harvey Dent a gun and telling him to cause a little anarchy. <laughs> the books have a much longer tale since there isn't the condensed timeline. After being set loose, he'd be hunted by Gandalf and Aragorn and eventually imprisoned in Mirkwood. He'd eventually escape from there, which is what brought Legolas to the Council of Elrond in the first place. Um, also, an important note here, uh, and I can't remember if I mentioned this in the Council of Elrond episode, I'm sure I didn't. Uh, when Aragorn is recounting uh, the ass ache it was to try and capture Gollum, um, he does not cite many reasons for not liking Gollum. The two he does cite are, <laughs> are he smelled like shit, and also he bit me. <laughs> which, like, for those of us who were alive back when this was viral, um, which I, as I say this, I am um, sprouting gray hairs, uh, is maybe not as many of us <laughs> as I would like to think, but that does make Aragorn, like, the OG Charlie bit my finger. <laughs> so, there's some, uh, more, <laughs> there's some, uh, grim aged jokes for you. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> um, and all that pretty much catches us up to when we first saw him shadowing the Fellowship in Moria and gets us to where we are now in the narrative. We'll talk about the rest as we go, but he is, as I mentioned, our link to the past, but also a window into the future. He represents a possible endpoint for Frodo, what could become of him if he doesn't keep his feet. It's really neat to have a character who can be past, present, and future all in one. So let's speak to his introduction in the film here. Gollum was on the periphery of the Fellowship of the Ring, mentioned early and often, then briefly glimpsed in the margins. He's been sulking just outside a frame, his stench reaching our noses, but not his person. That's, of course, why Sam and Frodo literally pull him down from the rocks and bring him onto our level. If you're going to be part of the story, come on down. A lot is conveyed in this first mute cute between Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. Frodo and Sam are smarter than Gollum thinks, 
and Gollum, for his part, can't help but audibly curse them as he tries to go for the ring. Not good stealthing, my dude. But though Sam and Frodo are prepared, they aren't able to just subdue Gollum. He fights back and is able to separate the two hobbits so he can take them on one-on-one. Gollum contended with a fair amount of orcs in his centuries under the Misty Mountains, so dude knows how to fight. Though he recovers, the minute Frodo's ring flops out, Gollum is head empty, must get ring. (laughs) The look in his eyes is fantastic, and as his long fingers grasp at it, we see the weird hyperactive breathing happening in his face. It's something truly insane yet somehow relatable, like me trying to grasp at the McDonald's fries at the bottom of the bag (laughs) while I drive home. Sam, the more stout of the two hobbits, is able to wrestle Gollum away from his master, but even as he does so, Gollum pulls a nice reversal, gets a bite in there, and maneuvers himself into a chokehold on Sam. It takes the unsheathing of Sting and the threat of elven cuts to subdue Gollum. In that short sequence, we find Gollum not to be some tired wraith, but strong, agile, resilient, resourceful. He'll play dirty, not that anyone can blame him. It's going to literally take the wherewithal of Sam and Frodo to keep him at bay and keep him in check. And this is another one of these elements where uh, Gollum sort of represents corruption, Um, because with the exception of Gandalf, who and I should preface this with Gandalf appears as an old man. um, But that's because he was told to he was instructed to commanded to by the the valor that he serves. Um, And uh, they chose the sort of form of an old man because that was meant to be sort of humble and unassuming. Typically, however, um, in the legendarium, uh, aging, um, particularly human signs of aging, um, are associated with sort of becoming, uh, I'm trying to be careful in my word choice here, but like softer, um, weaker, not necessarily as like, a, as a matter of like, uh, like weak of mind or incapable or like infirm, but, but, you know, because you're old as shit and you're tired and you don't want to have to like deal with things that you've been dealing with your whole life. Um, and there's sort of like a, a soft kind of landing for death or there ought to be a soft landing for death in in uh, like elderly people uh, elderly characters in the lord of the rings and that's sort of the the expected moral sort of pursuit of of aging and Gollum subverts this uh Gollum is old as balls um and can fight better than sam and frodo who are young and spry and 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 sort of at the the sort of like springtime of their life and their youths and and that in itself is sort of meant to be this corruption and it's not this like strength in old age born of nobility, as we'll see in Theoden and uh, Denethor. It's this strength that is from basically life thieved from, uh, or thieved from God, made in mockery of God, and, and it's meant to be sort of unsettling. I guess I can do another embarrassing admission here. Um, before, a while ago, Emily learned me about Gandalf's appearance and how it was kind of a choice. I just assumed it was he's old because he's just old relative to a wizard, and I imagined him in his younger days looking more like Michael Fassbender. Oh hell yeah! Um, just to go with the whole Magneto thing, where uh, you know Ian McKellen <laughs> plays old Magneto and Michael Fassbender played young Magneto. So I always pictured young Gandalf as Michael Fassbender. Uh, do with that as you will. <laughs> they tie him up with some elven rope and drag him along behind them as they try to navigate the Eamon Wheel by themselves. Gollum can't stand the touch of the elven craft to his skin, and he writhes and screams in pain the whole way, becoming a liability to the ring bearer. And this is where pity starts to come over Frodo. I talked about this last time when discussing why the two towers blew my fragile little mind, but I want to talk about Frodo employing Gollum as their guide. 
It was such a satisfying turn of events, just the perfect way to pull Gollum into the story and give him real purpose beyond just shadowing the ring bearer and being a source of conflict. Uneasy allies to prevent the end of the world? I'm sure there's a TV tropes page on this. But the narrative choice works so well here. Frodo is being smart and resourceful, it gives our heroes a pathway into the land of ash and fire, and it creates instant tension between the three characters and even within the within themselves in the case of Gollum ne Schmeagol. Yeah, and so this is also a big theme of uh, like the question of evil and the destruction of evil and uh, the Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien goes out of his way to ensure that the that the seeds of uh, evil's destruction are always planted within itself. And and so you know we'll talk about this more when we get to to Mount Doom. Um, but uh, you know Frodo isn't the one to cast the ring into into Mount Doom. Um, it's Gollum. Um, and it's Gollum who has been the most heinously corrupted by the ring. Um, it's Gollum who wants it most dearly, save for Sauron. Um, and yet it is also Gollum that inadvertently leads to the ring's destruction. And and that's sort of the, the this this important element um of Gollum sort of uh tag along <laughs> uh or you know uh motorcycle sidecarring of of this journey is because uh Frodo can't do it. Frodo can get it 99.9% of the way there, but he can't go all the way because the important moral purpose that Tolkien's going for here is that evil will always destroy itself. Anyways, so that that out of the way. Um this sort of tension between Sam and Gollum is super interesting. Um because it's one of the first real times we see like the inherent tension created between Peter Jackson and Co's class agnostic read on this story and what the narrative is actually doing. For the remainder of the story, the books make it clear that the class dynamics at work are absolutely central to the story. Frodo is the landed gentry, and he stands at the top of this three-person hierarchy, and not only has the most emotionally developed personality, but also has the personality that the most number of people are compelled to cope with. If Frodo's having a bad day, everybody else has to stop and handle it. If Sam's having a bad day, he just has to get on with it. Sam, then, is the second rung. Sam is Frodo's faithful servant. And I do need to emphasize that time and time and time again, Sam is identified as Frodo's servant. And Sam plays that part well. He is exactly what Frodo needs, or thinks he needs, at all times, and he does not quarrel or quibble with Frodo's choices. In the books, Sam does not like Gollum, but the conflict is infinitely less overt because Sam is keenly aware that the choice to take on Gollum as the navigator is Frodo's decision, and is therefore the one that he, Sam, the servant, is bound to. Gollum, of course, is the odd man out. He's pressed into service, but he does not serve Frodo as Frodo. He serves a secondary material master. He will occasionally do as he's told, but only because he's pretty overtly forced into it. This is unlike Sam, who very happily recognizes that Frodo gets to make all the decisions because he is of the better class. Gollum represents the kind of unwieldy servant who won't just apply that logic quietly. This is not to say that Gollum is some sort of covert class warrior. We can see that he ultimately keeps himself bound in his metaphorical chains, even when he doesn't have to. But Gollum represents the sort of bad servant that Tolkien is seeking to propagandize against. At the end of April of 1944, um, in a letter to his son Christopher, Tolkien compares Gollum and Sam's relationship to that of Ariel and Caliban in Shakespeare's The Tempest. In that play, Ariel is portrayed as basically submissive and proper servant, whereas Caliban is rebellious and uh, tempestuous, um, and they are really important foils to one another. So I actually do want to hear uh, be a self-parody of myself uh, and read out some important bits from The Tempest. 
Um, you will have to forgive me because I'm totally not trained in uh, Shakespearean acting and I have been like sitting at work uh, all day trying to get the iambic pentameter down by like smacking my chest like a gorilla. So we'll see how this goes. Um, but for starters, after that a brilliant uh, and uh, self-aggrandizing <laughs> intro, uh, here's Ariel's entrance. All hail, great master. Grave sir, hail. I come to answer thy best pleasure, be it to fly, to swim, to dive into the fire, to ride on the curled clouds. To thy strong bidding task, Ariel, and all his quality. And that is obviously this, you know, he literally says, uh, it, you know, I will do what you want, even if it is to dive into the fire. Uh, and, you know, that's that that would be our Sam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. here's his foil, Caliban, in that very same scene. This island's mine by Sycorax, my mother, which thou takest from me. When thou camest first, thou strokest me and made much of me. And then I loved thee. Cursed be the eye that did so, for I am all the subjects that you have, which first was mine own king, and here you sty me. In this hard rock walls you do keep from me the rest of my island. And that, I mean, you know, that's big, big golem vibes. And also, sorry, this is something I clocked earlier, but um, Caliban's entrance, I'm pretty sure. I don't have the Tempest in front of me, but I'm pretty sure when Caliban first enters, um, he immediately starts off uh, by, oh yeah, so he starts off by like like literally hurling curses at Prospero, which is exactly what Gollum does when he enters in, in the, both the film and sort of to a lesser extent in the books, which is just this like immediate sort of, you know, Shakespearean much nicer language, but fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, get out of my way, fuck you, which is exactly what Gollum's doing. And then launching into this sort of thesis of his uh you know style of servant servitude which is i don't want to serve you but and you in this instance being the ring but you treated me nicely and now i've been sort of taken from being the king of my island to being nothing more than a subject and a servant and now i'm fucking mad about it and that really is like you know that's Gollum. that is exactly what Gollum is um and i guess like you know for me the films have kind of broadly wiped class from their sort of internal narrative equation and so they kind of face a problem with Gollum which is how do you build tension in like literally interminable Frodo Sam Gollum scenes their answer to that is by basically pitting Sam Gollum against one another from the start with more like met mutual petty antagonism not really divergent approaches to class deference we'll talk about this more like as the story progresses but this ends up kind of being a huge unforced L as far as I'm concerned especially for Frodo's character because his trust in Gollum in this instance makes him like a massive dipshit. Frodo approaches Gollum in one of the few times a hobbit is actually physically imposing over someone else. Gollum slowly creeps back and as Frodo asks him about Mordor, you can see fear in Gollum's face. Even he's scared of that place and wouldn't want to venture back in. Remember all that talk about how characters talk to hobbits and kneeling down? Well, we get a taste of that here, as Frodo bends down to remove the rope from Colum's neck and tells him to lead them to the Black Gate. I also find something satisfying in how these scenes are paced and are cut. Frodo gives the command, and then we're off running through the Emin wheel as Gollum leads the way. Transitioning over to our cinematography and score section. For a 2002 film, I think the VFX on Gollum still look great, but that first shot of him atop the rocks with the moon behind him is maybe the most obvious CGI golem in the entire series. Maybe it's because everything around him is also fake in that shot, 
Surprisingly, he looks a lot better when in the frame with the actual set and actors. I think specifically of Gollum and Sam wrestling and seeing Gollum's forearm around Sam's neck. For me, that looks great, even now, but especially then. I've said before, but I love the artifice of cinema, knowing something is fake or contrived, but still executed to the point of believability. This really nails it. Okay, here's going to be my slightly insane rationalization of any moment that isn't absolutely flawless uh, CG-wise in these films. Uh, And I recognize as I'm about to say this how completely batshit I'm going to sound. But here's the take. When you're reading a story to someone, you are necessarily going to stumble either on pronunciation or just because it's hard to read out loud for a long time. Like, you're going to fuck up inevitably. (laughs) I think the moments of, like, potential CG weakness in these films are the equivalent of that. Like, it's just, you know, your guardian, your mother, your father, your whoever who's reading to you is just getting slightly tired of the bedtime story and mispronounces something or, you know, has their voice crack or whatever and doesn't execute it flawlessly. And that's what this is, I think. And it's deranged, but I think I've now staked my flag in this and going to have to defend it relentlessly through some of the infinitely worse uh, CG throughout the rest of these films. But here we go. Yeah. To be clear, this isn't something I actually like downgrade this movie for. It still has a total of eight stars out of five on my letterbox. <laughs> um, and it, I mean, I've criticized very little of these movies so far. I don't, I don't think it's bad. I just think the quality of all the other shots, especially when in frame with Sam and Frodo, yeah. are just so good that this one kind of stands out. But um, I'm going to maybe just kind of skip ahead to our something I was going to mention, the token token section. I do think this first shot actually has some thematic poignance because the way Gollum is crawling down the uh, rock wall is very much like a spider, which is uh, supposed to, you know, probably invoke Shelob. And in the Two Towers books, um, book four, which, you know, tells the story of Frodo and Sam making it into Mordor, it's kind of bookended with first Gollum crawling into the narrative like a spider and then ends with very much a literal spider and Shelob kind of being the end of the book. So I think that part works thematically. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't have any real complaints, but it's just this shot just kind of sticks out as the one. If I had to pick out one flaw in this movie and there's not any flaws in this movie, uh, that that would probably be the one. Yeah. Uh, sorry, this is this is like tangentially related, but um, my Adderall is obviously wearing off as we record this. So my brain went totally in a different direction <laughs> there. Um, but the, the spider thing. So I obviously didn't see these movies until like 2018, 2019 or whatever. Um, and had seen the horror film, James Wan's film, Insidious. Uh, you know, one of these horror films that I, I think I saw it when I was like 13 uh, had a disproportionate impact on me for how scary it actually is. But there's a bit where like uh, the big bad, the big red face emoji guy uh, is doing his spider crawl walk on the ceiling. And that scared the shit out of me as a 13 year old. Um, and it is this proper spider crawl thing down a wall. And I'm, I'm sure there's probably a bit of the Gollum stuff in there. But when I first saw these films, I definitely associated that with the with like or Gollum with that more because I didn't have the Gollum context first. And, and now that I think back on it, I think the CG in that was also like shitty. Um, but it like evoked such like a feeling of like absolute fear in me that I think like. To this day, that kind of spider crawl that he does down that uh, down that cliff face is like genuine horror movie levels of spooky to me, um, and it's it's definitely not meant to be. Like it's definitely not meant to be, but I still kind of get my heart racing a bit, and I'm like, oh boy, spooky. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. It's even a little bit akin to the original Exorcist movie, which oh, has a God. similar scene of the little girl kind of crawling backwards Oof. down or up the stairs. I forget. It's been a long time. Yeah, but yeah, down the stairs. I can see that. Oof. And Gollum, especially in his introduction before we actually know him to be kind of a slinker and a stinker, um, he is kind of like, he could be just as bad as any monster we've seen. He's small, but he could be like the Watcher in the Water or the Balrog in terms of maliciousness. Um, we really have no idea because we haven't really met him properly yet. Uh, yeah. So like, you know, horror is in part, you know, or is often related to unknowing something. Yeah. So I can definitely see that. This is why I think Peter Jackson's sort of background in, in horror films and like the the sort of uh, pulpy horror is really, really beneficial to these films overall. Um, like sometimes I kind of uh, bend towards, you know, he's going for a horror movie take on, you know, whatever scene's happening because that's that's sort of his wheelhouse. And maybe that's not necessarily the best call here. But I actually think, yeah, like getting in a horror movie director to handle Gollum is like the right call on this. Um, sort of in the same way that I like am endlessly, endlessly bitter that Guillermo del Toro didn't actually get to do the Hobbit in the end. Um, it's that sort of like perfect kind of fit, uh, and like I can't really imagine a pure like action director or like a f- fuck like a like a fucking rom com director or whatever handling Gollum in the same way because I don't think they'd have that like right set of like aesthetic sensibilities and kind of like vernacular at their disposal. We talked about subsurface scattering in our earlier discussion, and that immediately comes into focus in this introduction. Gollum is captured at night and is led around the following morning. You can see how his skin is bluer and more solid in moonlight, but grayer and more translucent in sunlight. And as this film welcomes us back to Middle-earth, it wants to reintroduce the themes laid out in Fellowship of the Ring, both as a sense of home but also because Shore will continue to develop these themes and leitmotifs and intermingle them as we move forward with the story. Fellowship of the Ring plays us in with the Shire and concerning hobbits, but we're not in the Shire anymore. We get a little taste of that music here as the boys chow down on some lembas, a warm moment for Frodo and Sam. But warm moments are few and far between here, so properly our touch base with concerning hobbits is very short-lived. Um, I've been kind of fighting with myself over the issue of the scouring of the Shire. Um, and I'm going to save a lot of these thoughts just because they're like half baked and, and not really good. Um, but I've been sort of trying to t- trying to work out in my head, like what the justification, what the actual justification is for getting rid of the scouring of the Shire and like what it does to the sort of overall purpose of the Shire and in, uh, in, in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, and whereas the Shire in the Lord of the Rings books is sort of inherently linked to geography. Um, but in, in, in the sort of way that like, um, you can't ever go home once you've left it because, um, because although the, the sort of geography and, and the, the sort of footprint and facade of, of this world or your home, you know, will continue to, well, hopefully will continue to exist. There's, there's something sort of like psychosocial about it that, that changes once you've gone out and had these different experiences, these experiences that might change or undermine your sort of base uh, beliefs and, and, uh, in, in home. Uh, and the films don't have that. So, so the, the thesis of, as far as the Shire is concerned, the thesis of the books is you can't ever really go home. Uh, home disappears the minute you step outside that, that door and you know you take the road on and on uh and and you know maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing um the thesis of the films however is 
home is always with you. Um, and you can indeed go home again. Um, because in some ways you don't ever really leave home. Like you may, you may leave the sort of geography of home. Uh, you may leave your actual house or, or the hills that you know best, but, but there's always a little bit of home like within you. Um, and, uh, so at the end, you know, when, when they come back to the Shire, um, it's as much about like the sort of physical edifices of the, of the Shire and what that represents as it is about them sort of having that feeling of home kind of brought forth within them again. And I think using concerning hobbits in the way that they do throughout these films in particular, but especially here is about the sort of reminder to the audience that they still carry as, as much as Frodo is sort of carrying the ring around his neck, like beneath that, like, and like not to sound too corny, but like beneath that in his heart, he's also carrying the Shire. He's also carrying hope. In the 1950s, J.R.R. Tolkien began to record chapters of The Lord of the Rings. They were later released on vinyl as J.R.R. Tolkien reads and sings The Lord of the Rings, split into The Hobbit and Fellowship, and then The Two Towers and Return of the King. They are now insanely difficult and insanely expensive to get your hands on, running something like 400 quid per LP. But if you happen to be an underground vinyl dealer who knows how I can get my grubby little hands on them for cheaper than that, please, 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 please hit me up. Anyways. Cringe begging aside, I want to play for you a bit of Tolkien reading Gollum's song, The Cold Hard Lands. Though it isn't until the crew gets to the dead marshes that Gollum sings this, I think it's interesting to listen to this here and now to really get a sense for the difference between the Gollum of the books and the Gollum of the films. Gollum chuckled to himself, sometimes even croaking in a sort of song. The cold hard lands, they bites our hands, they gnaws our feet. The rocks and stones are like old bones, all bare of meat. But stream and pool is wet and cool, so nice for feet. And now we wish. Aha, what does we wish? He guessed it long ago. Baggins guessed it. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsting, ever drinking. Clad in mail, never clinking. Drowns on dry land, thinks an island is a mountain, thinks a fountain is a puff of air, so sleek, so fair, what a joy to meet. We only wish to catch a fish, so you see, sweet. Gollum shows up for the first time in The Hobbit, and while there's no denying he's a really wretched, grim figure there, he's not quite the turbocharged, tragic figure that he is in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien actually ended up significantly revising Gollum's character to better suit the issue of the One Ring in The Lord of the Rings in Universe, but the divergence between Gollum's characterization in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings is explained away as a fabrication on behalf of Bilbo. Bilbo told Gandalf, the dwarves, and the hobbits one story about the quest, and reality told quite another. There's kind of an argument to be made that Gollum is reminiscent of, if not directly inspired by, Grendel and Beowulf. Beowulf is actually going to be super, super important narratively for this film in particular, so I'm going to stop myself from saying too much more on it just now, but this is a little interesting piece of that particular puzzle. 
And if you want to get ahead on the homework for the coming weeks, I suggest going to pick up a copy of Beowulf. My favorite is Seamus Heaney's. I promise you it is nowhere near as hard as people told you it was in high school. And it's definitely something you can chug through in an hour or two. I think I did it in an hour before work last summer uh, when I was hella procrastinating. Um, And it's well worth your time. uh, And you will see a lot of echoes of the plots of the two towers in it. So get ahead on that. Anyways, we actually have a letter dating when Tolkien started to work on these chapters in the books, the 5th of April, 1944. For some more time context here, in the previous month, the Brits dropped a bomb over the Vatican. The Americans began, for the first time ever, daytime bombing raids on Berlin. The Germans moved to occupy Hungary, Mount Vesuvius erupted, killing 26, and a whole host of British warships were torpedoed and sunk worldwide. It was, to put it lightly, not a great time to be around. The existence and reemergence of Gollum, then, is very much a product of this time. You almost see in Gollum this sort of dark, terrible, miserable flip side of the coin to humanity. Or what we are during the war. What we are when we let the war corrupt us. And I think it's really, really hard for me, especially, to read some of the Gollum chapters in light of that. Because Gollum is so clearly a reflection of who we as humanity are at our very worst. I want to get like too esoteric or preachy here, but I do think that the Gollum of the books has slightly le- less patheticness to him and slightly more fear and horror. It's kind of like looking at a mirror sometimes because as much as we joke about wanting or thinking that we're all Gollum, it's a very different thing to actually see parts of yourself in Gollum. And it does freak me out a bit. But that's the Gollum of the books. He's very much not the Gollum of the movies. And also, quite importantly, these movies were not made during World War II. No, they weren't. I don't have much intelligent to add to that. Um, I can talk to my own dumbassery a little bit, or rather, what could have been my own dumbassery, because if I had not seen these movies um, before I read the books, I don't know if I would have been able to parse Gollum's dialogue in these chapters. <laughs> Um, at least when I was 17 or 18, I was, I remember staring at this, like, this is how this dude talks. <laughs> and again, I knew it from the movies, but it's just like, I get why Aragorn was pissed about having to <laughs> capture this guy. It, like it totally makes sense. And I'm glad I was able to at least see the two towers first before I read the taming of Smeagol and like was able to figure out a way to actually parse what he's saying, understand, okay, this is like his Smeagol side. This is his Gollum side, but I could have seen that being a roadblock to me if, you know, I'm as dumb as I was then. So <laughs> wanted to flag that. And then one other thing I want to pull out from the books is the fact that uh, while Sam and Frodo are navigating the Emon Wheel, uh, Frodo suffers about a blindness as he's like descending down the rocks. And uh, this is something that is kind of tied to the power of the ring. Uh, one thing I don't remember if we mentioned in Fellowship, but Frodo's eyesight kind of lessens, but all his other senses kind of tune up a little bit. Um, I guess he's like Daredevil from the Marvel Universe. (laughs) But uh, so he's kind of in the darkness here. And then when they discover Gollum, you know, he essentially, you know, binds Gollum to Frodo and to this quest to destroy the ring, which very much um, invokes that line from the, you know, poem about the ring, about one ring and in the darkness bind them. Literally in the darkness of the Emin Wheel uh, is where uh, Frodo and Gollum are bound to each other. And I'm not that smart. I wouldn't have thought of that initially. That was actually a point I heard on Emmett Booth, who joined for us for our Balrog episode. 
He's covering the Lord of the Rings once again over at Not A Cast ASOIAF podcast. So you can go out and check him as he's currently covering book four in his podcast. That that point's really interesting to me as well, because I think um <laughs> so 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 binding Frodo to Gollum in the darkness is like as much about like the sort of sympathetic weather as like this this kind of moment of crisis that Frodo is going through at this point in the books, which is uh, he's just lost Gandalf. Uh, you know, in, in the books, it's been 250 pages since we've last seen uh, Frodo, but but time wise, it's a matter of days. Um, well, okay, a month, month or so, mm, eight weeks, I think, because that's how long they spend in uh Lothlorien. Anyways, it's it's soon. It's it's very, very shortly after. And and so he has this sort of moment of spiritual and intellectual darkness that that he's going through. Um and, you know, having Gollum sort of come to him as this anti-Gandalf in a lot of ways represents, I think, the kind of well, you, you know what? Um here's me shoehorning in shit that is sort of vaguely relevant, but I'm fascinated by it. anyways. Uh in, in Faramir's <laughs> bright sword speech, uh, he he says uh War must be while we uh, defend our lives against a uh, conqueror who would devour all, I believe the line is. Um, and what he's saying is essentially we have to do unsavory shit to protect ourselves against even worse things that are coming. Um, and swapping Gandalf for Gollum, or Gand- Gollum for Gandalf rather, is that unsavory shit that, that Frodo's having to do. Um, and yes, he is guided to it in this sort of moment of spiritual darkness, but it's also this necessary... Um, or sort of overall necessary moment of spiritual darkness where where Frodo doesn't really have a choice. Maybe he's not making the best decisions ever, but ultimately this this choice that he has to make and and the sort of bleakness of of the spiritual and sort of uh, emotional realm that he's inhabiting then actually ends up being the right one uh, down the road and for for literally everybody. Yeah. And uh, when I was listening to Emmett's podcast about this and he brought up the, you know, the darkness bind them line, I'm like, oh, that's a really good connection. And then last night I was reading the Taming of Smeagol chapter and Tolkien literally has in one of his like paragraph breaks that line italicized in the middle. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 not being subtle. And I'm not trying to undercut Emmett's point at all. He was very <laughs> astute to point it out. But um, I was just kind of shocked that it was just like, oh, <laughs> he just put the fucking poem line right in there. That's that's kind of neat. Yeah, well, Tolkien doesn't much go in for uh, for subtlety, um, and it, it's actually one of the reasons why I'm grateful that most people now, at least, see the films before they read the books, because the actual portrayal or description of the appearance of Book Gollum is, uh, to put it lightly, not one of Tolkien's better moments. Um, and if you ever go through and look at the previous like book covers or or like uh art drawn of the lord of the rings uh you're gonna see some really fucking grim uh drawings of Gollum, uh some like very racialized ones uh some ones that are like so racist it almost turns into being like camp in a fucked up way uh like so like cartoonishly anti-black and anti-semitic that you're like how like but they'll but then there'll be like covers from the 1980s as well so you'll be like what the fuck like what is going on uh how much cocaine were these fucking guys on when they approved this um but the 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 films by having 
largely avoided um, shirked the outright racism or general sort of unsavoriness and and the description of Gollum um, have kind of done a reset on what Gollum is as a character in in a lot of ways. And it's one of the few instances where I'm really grateful for the kind of film based revisionism towards book characters because I really I look I really don't want to see any more of these like racist Gollum drawings. I really can't cope. Oh, well, I have not seen any of these. I have seen um, the animated Lord of the Rings from the 80s at yeah. the Ralph Bakshi, <laughs> uh, his interpretation of Gollum. And then there's this one painting, which I'm sure I'll put with the episode, that's like kind of like in the Renaissance style of like Greek gods falling over themselves. And it looks like oh, Sam, God. Frodo, and Gollum are about to like fucking get it on. <laughs> like it's very sexual, <laughs> um, which it's it just funny to me. But it's just like, yeah, there wasn't really a clear description or there wasn't a clear definition of what Gollum was. And now we see that the film has kind of defined what Gollum looks like, even in this new Gollum based Lord of the Rings video game coming out, even though it's essentially, it's not supposed to be uh, Peter Jackson's take on middle earth, but the Gollum is very much the Gollum we know from the Andy circus performance. Yeah. And and I also think, you know, uh, again, to shoehorn in things that have basically no relevance, but this justifies why I get so skittish about uh, the Lord of the Rings on prime, because like, if you have this one super popular depiction uh, that ends up being the canonical depiction, even if it isn't really the the sort of canonical, cool, like proper canonical depiction. Um, and in the case of Gollum, that works out really well because we get rid of all of this ridiculous stuff. Uh, but potentially, <laughs> uh, there could be some other uh, portrayals that are to come in or that are forthcoming in Lord of the Rings on Prime. That I, I should stop calling it that. The Rings of the Rings of Prime, the Rings of Power. Uh, that uh, you know might might not be so good and might not be so. Uh, beneficial to us all uh, on a psychic psychological level um but yeah i mean you can also kind of do this this sort of interesting like micro history tracing like uh the the, the sort of vas- various du jour kind of racisms of uh the anglophone west based on how Gollum gets portrayed uh and uh here i guess it's uh yeah we just hate hate little guys <laughs> hate short kings <laughs> boo <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Before I do our usual sign-off, I do want to announce that we did meet our first stretch goal of 75 patrons, which you'll probably already know about once this episode drops. Um, So you will have fellowship bonus episodes coming your way very soon. And we can move on to our next stretch goal. At 100 patrons, we will unlock bonus episodes for both The Two Towers and Return of the King once we get to it. Oh, so please, please, you, please, guys, please. Yeah, I know Fellowship was fun, but the real meaty stuff that Emily really, really wants to dive into uh, really comes in The Two Towers and Return of the King. Maybe we can do a whole episode just on Urkin Brand. Um, oh, fuck yeah. You know, why, why not? Why not? Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me on Twitter at JR Tweeting, where I will be slowly coveting my precious toasting a pint to our sound editor Stephen boyd aka dj empirical on twitter please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening so until next time remember i would have followed you my brother 
my captain, my king. Damn it, can't. <laughs> Got anarchy.